Uh, good afternoon, welcome back uh, for what we have, one of the finals and the best uh, sessions for this happiness uh, conference. The session panel theme, we kept it very simple, scaling happiness and health, translating science to application. And for this, we have Dr. Vish here, who is the director of the Health and Happiness Center at Harvard T. John School of Public Health. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'll not go into the bio, but I need to share you this. This was possible partly because of Vish. Vish has been right from the beginning when the proposal was discussed. Um, I know Vish travels a lot, and in fact, uh, he was on the uh, on road, I think, uh, uh, somewhere in India. And I was somewhere in Bhutan, and getting internet connection was a big challenge. <laughs> but uh, we managed to do it, and thank you so much, Vish, for encouraging this um, happiness uh, conference. And uh, with this, without further ado, I wanted to request Vish to not only share on the conference theme, but also in a way synthesize the whole day of very, very high level and expertise workshop that we had at the health school yesterday. And um, along with that, I just wanted to share in terms of the, uh, I know we have a slightly lesser number of uh, uh, panelists, because we thought that towards the end you have to take away with a focused mind on whatever you're learning today. Um, so, Vish, without further ado, if I could request you to kindly set the theme for this panel and moderate as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, this is uh, late afternoon, um, I, and I thought I paid the King Guy a lot of money so that he can put me first thing in the morning. <laughs> uh, uh, apparently not. Uh, no, seriously, uh, let me thank King Guy and his team uh, for organizing this uh, wonderful meeting. Uh, it's been an extremely educational and instructive panel um, or sessions all day in the morning. It's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, that um, you know you can pull together uh, such a group of people from all over the world uh, to to talk about some of these issues that are uh, of considerable concern to a lot of us. Um, so what uh, we, um, uh, we we want to do, I think, in this panel uh, is, is really raise some issues on uh, scaling. Uh, let me let me uh, start with a uh, story. Uh, somewhat apocryphal in, in the facts, but who care, cares about facts, right, you know, at this time of the day? Um, so, uh, right, uh, well, I don't know whether I want to go there. Uh, I already got into trouble by saying something about it yesterday at the workshop I organized, or co-organized yesterday. So, um, uh, a simple question, right? How long does it take evidence to move from research settings to change practice? 1700 years. Right? 400 years, 17 years. I can take the bids now. Uh, so let me uh, 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 give you, some of you are familiar with this, the story of Scurvy. 
um, the you know the number of people uh, who were affected by scurvy, especially the sailors. You know, we are talking about the sailors. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of sailors used to die at sea uh, when they developed scurvy. But um, the the um, the solution, and actually it's an accidental discovery, as most discoveries are, uh, was found uh, by a doctor, a physician, found that uh, you know lemon juice uh, could potentially help. Uh, I think it's somewhere around the tail end of the 15th century. Uh, but the actual implementation into practice took 500 years, right? Only in 1950s when we really figured it out how to do this. Uh, in the meanwhile, within those four or five hundred years, uh, a few more tens of thousands, if not millions of people died or suffered from scurvy, right? Just think about that, the implication of that. So subsequently, a number of studies have been done, and this has been a major concern uh, for most of us, uh, that we, we are investing a lot of money in research um, our research and development, as they call it, um, you know, we uh, I, we are not showing slides, but I have some data, uh, uh, you know, which shows you know virtually hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, I think the last time I looked at it was something like 1.3 trillion dollars across the world in research and development. The question is, and these are either directly or indirectly public money, right? And the question is, what do we owe the public from this investment they are making, right? And how long does it take the public to benefit from this investment that is being made, right? So, uh, so there, there are uh, a number of studies that have been done. One is uh, one of which is uh, from uh, uh, Canada, actually. You know, uh, Ballas, uh, Jonathan Ballas, and Boran have done one study which showed that something like it takes approximately, and on average, 17 years, uh, uh, as, as someone prompted, uh, uh, it's a mom, I guess, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I have a message from her to you pretty soon here. Uh, uh, so 17 years, uh, you know, for, a, for a, you know, innovation to, uh, from a research setting to come and change practice, you know. And, and the data also from that study shows that only 14% of those findings ever reached, reached the practice world, right? Only 14%, right? So if you think about it, and only 18% of the administrators and practitioners report using evidence base, right? So, so here we are in, in this wonderful setting uh, talking about gross national happiness. Um, and this very word happiness, as we discussed yesterday, uh, is, is being widely um, uh, followed. It, the term resonates with a lot of people. But, but the question is, uh, you know, uh, what do we do with it? You know, how do we promote happiness? So we have the Global Happiness Policy Report. Uh, Professor Halliwell uh, spoke uh, very eloquently uh, today, this morning, but also he has uh, been going all around the world along with uh, uh, you know, Richard Laird and uh, um, um, Jeff Sachs, Jeffrey Sachs and others uh, talking about uh, promoting happiness uh, in, in terms of policy and practice. But the simple question is, you know, what do we do 
really that can re promote happiness you know and do we really know for sure what we do actually leads to the promotion of practice i mean promotion promotion of happiness the evidence is much mixed than you think right much more mixed than you think now you might say well who cares right as long as we can do these things you know how does it really matter uh, because we can continue to uh, you know uh, provide uh, all kinds of practices you know the so called best practices and continue to practice but think about it how many of us want to use a drug that has not gone through rigorous testing how many want of us want to go to a practitioner who has not been trained and has not gone through that rigorous training you know i bet you you know it will be very few of us who are willing to take that chance right so why is it that we are unwilling to take that chance on ourselves but are all too willing to adopt policies promote policies promote actions promote practices that could potentially cause harm and 5 years later 10 years later 15 years later we say oops we made a mistake right and our history is replete with such types of innovations so called innovations where 10 i don't understand english and i'm also an enumerate so uh, i'm giving her a tough time you know she showed me 3 minutes you know so uh, uh, so our history is replete with these mistakes right where 15 years later 20 years later we say oh we made a mistake maybe we should not have done that the point is we will of course we cannot so if, if you think about it um, you know i often have these friendly debates with my colleagues in the in the school of public health who who run randomized control trials uh, who strongly believe that randomized control trials are gold standard um, and any evidence other than randomized control trials is suspicious you know uh, and i'm thinking you know i work with communities you know i my research is around issues of poverty and translational communications and for me to go to a community and say you will be a control community while i'll experiment someone else takes more than hubris that's kind of an imperial arrogance you know that has led to these mistakes we have made historically in science right so the the so we we can't wait ask the communities our partners to wait you know while we compile the evidence base right so that's the, that's the tension here right? so what is it we can do that will minimize mistakes you know or minimize the probability of making mistakes but what is it we can do that we can help people today and don't tell them wait for 15 years i will have a solution for you right and this is this is the this is the crux of the issue as we discuss and debate these uh, issues i think that's what worries me this is what keeps me up in the night to be very frank you know there there are some big challenges in the world big challenges extreme poverty 20% right you know and 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 not lot, lot of people are benefiting from these biomedical and technological revolutions right the question is you know why is it that not everyone is benefiting from it what are the obligations we have here right we had some wonderful examples on 
having this kind of a participatory approach in this lab in Bhutan that you are, you are, you are starting, right? That's one of the things we have been pushing, this notion of bottom-up, demand side, acknowledging the demand side, using this participatory approach, you know, to really think about policies, co-designing these policies, and ensuring that whatever we develop in these controlled research settings translates very well into the practice world. But whatever we do in terms of learn in the practice world, around issues of happiness, well-being, whatever you want to call, and bring it back to the research world. How do we create that safe space for researchers and practitioners and policymakers to work together in a very safe environment? Right? So that's one of the biggest challenges you know, I think you know, we, we need to think about. A second challenge is, you know, someone asked a question this morning about you know, refugees. And so my point is, you know, on migration. Migration is going to be a big issue, right? It's not just about one issue, right? Poverty is a big issue. Inclusiveness is a big issue. And every time we do something like this, we need to ask the question, and I, I, this is what I tell my colleagues, we need to ask the question, we are here at the table. Who is not at the table with us? You know, right? The whole idea of participation depends upon bringing in people who are not at the table, the disenfranchised groups, to be with us, to co-design the solutions. In fact, co-characterize the problem first, and then come up with appropriate designs, right? So that's the reason. I think that's one of the things we are struggling with in, in, in the world of translation. Uh, you know, how do we do this so that we can promote? And that's why I think you know, when Kinga came and said it was so exciting to see this conference, because I think you know what they are trying to do, both from as a policy, you know, and as a as a uh, bottom-up uh, feature in the community is is very important. Let me make one last point before Meredith throws me off the <laughs> forum here. You know, so I'll, I'll uh, right, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, uh, perceived power, but it's not real power. You know, so. Uh, so let me let me just say you know one last thing I think you know as, as we do this, uh, if the I don't think we should get caught up too much about indices, rankings of the countries. Indices are important, quantification is important. It's not that it's not unimportant, but rankings uh, are rhetor rhetorical devices, right? That's what Professor Helliwell was saying, right? Uh, if if they don't have the ranking, nobody will talk about happiness. Nobody cares, right? So the whole idea in actually doing that ranking is actually get people to talk, and, and then you actually have them discuss things in depth, right? That's the whole point of this, you know, not, not because uh, somehow rankings are sacred, I think. You know? so, that's, uh, these, so that's partly quantification has its value, but not for the reasons you think it is. You know? so, uh, so with that, uh, let me go ahead and introduce the panel. Uh, first, we'll have, I believe we'll go in the order uh, it is in. So Alejandro Adler, you can read his bio, uh, from Columbia University, he has been working uh, quite a bit uh, with uh, Dr. Helliwell and others on education innovations. Yeah. Go ahead. Sure, thank you. That was, uh, it's quite a, a tremendous act to follow, uh, Vish, but I, uh, I'll, I'll take a, a good stab at it in a short 10 minutes. Uh, 
I think that, that first point you bring up of, of scientific and, and experimental rigor on the one hand and, and the tension with impact on the other is one uh, we our team wrestles with a lot. Uh, rigor implying uh, time and, and careful experimental design and so on and, and sometimes leading to what we often call analysis paralysis where you just analyze data, data, data to but then if you go straight to impact, you might have a lot of impact, but the impact may be both positive and potentially reckless uh, or, or null, right? So there's that very, and I, I believe that as practicing academics or academic practitioners, we need to find that delicate balance between rigor and impact. Um, that, so, so what have we done um, in the realm of happiness and, and, and well-being? Um, I, and vis-a-vis -vis the translation of science to, to policy and eventually impact. Uh, we've seen that it's necessary to, uh, to really answer three questions from the most uh, theoretical to the most statisti statistical and eventually the most really uh, pragmatic and, and, and impactful um, solutions. Uh, first and foremost, before we're going to even start to work with a community, we need to ask what is it that we're talking about here? Is it happiness, is it well-being? And the more and more the sciences of well-being, I'll call them, have uh, advanced, we now know that there is no one definition, right? It's very useful to have a cantrell ladder for comparative purposes and to have a nice, uh, a, 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 a nice global ranking that is very attractive and get people in the room. But we need to know that well-being and happiness, and we actually use both of those words so that there's not an or, uh, is, is multidimensional. It has elements of positive affect, engagement, healthy relationships, meaning, purpose, accomplishment, self-efficacy, self-determination, and the list goes on. And why, why is this important? Because when you arrive with a full constellation of well-being domains to start to work with a community and you listen, you create a genuine dialogue and, and realize what is truly significant and important to the stakeholders with whom you're working. And we work specifically in education. And so we realize what is important when it comes to human flourishing to students, to teachers, to parents, to principals, superintendents, policymakers, so that we can arrive at a consensus and not be paternalistic or, or colonial about the entire enterprise and say, here's a counter ladder, and that's your happiness, whether you like it or not, and whatever you put yourself on an 11-point Likert scale is, uh, you know, that's going to define the rest of what we do at the government. I, I, that would be not only ridiculous, but also just incredibly hubristic. Um, so it's, it's very healthy, I think, to have a full constellation as comprehensive as possible when you start these kinds of work and you want, when you want to translate science to policy and not have a predefined model or, or theory. Um, secondly, measurement. Uh, measurement is necessary. It's not sufficient, of course, but you need to know where a community is, whatever your community of impact is, whether it's a family, a nation, or anywhere in between. Um, and again, there's, it's necessary to co-construct these measurement instruments and have the full uh, the, the, the full constellation of methodologies. So self-report has become the quote-unquote gold standard, and that's very nice, but in a lot of cultures, self-report doesn't really make 
uh, sense in, in some communities in Bhutan where we've worked, uh, I mean, and once you start explaining a Likert scale or, or anything, I mean, you are, you're already contaminating the quote unquote, uh, the, the response, right? And in North India, uh, Nepal, likewise. <coughs> so I think having multi-method knowing that well-being and happiness can be measured, you know, in, in the most rigorous and, and time and resource intensive from the neuroscientific level and seeing that the left prefrontal cortex and amygdala are involved in emotional regulation and positive affect to uh, biometric uh, measures, heart rate variability, cortisol levels, behavioral uh, measures of, of whether people actually have healthy relationships, not just reporting them. Um, Self-report, of course, and then the blossoming big data revolution that really can be leveraged to measure well-being in real time. And uh, there's a second component to measurement, which is not only co-constructing the measurement instruments, but really having the measurement have resonance with whomever the ultimate stakeholders and beneficiaries of whatever policy is. So having access to the data, having knowing how to make sense of it, knowing how to track it, um, so, so that it's not something, again, abstract and, 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 and imposed. And finally, so what is it that we're talking about? How do we measure it? And the, the third question is, how do we increase it? And, and it's very easy to come with these nice prepackaged copy-paste interventions that come from whether it's the world of health or education or positive psychology, but it's absolutely essential to, again, have a multi-stakeholder engagement and realize what is already locally present that works and identify the strengths and assets socially, culturally, economic that are already there and synergistically combined with quote unquote best practices with always having a, an absolute emphasis of adapting it to the local context and culture by being a, a facilitator rather than a, a, a trainer or, or a policy maker, right? And really involving every single one of, of the stakeholders. And in our education work, again, it's having the students and the teachers and the parents and the principals and the policymakers all around the table to say what is it that makes sense to you as outcomes, as measurements, and then as actual interventions. And, and, and that's, um, I mean, I, I, I guess it's, it's what I'll say. And then it, it is, I think, irresponsible to go straight to policy, even if something has worked at a nation wide scale in the US or in the UK going to Bhutan to put a name on it and saying, well, now this is going to be policy because it's, it's not a vaccine, right? I mean, the, these happiness and well-being is intrinsically cultural and socio-psychological and so n needs to be fully embedded before it can be uh, uh, promoted via education, via health, uh, and, and, and other uh, intervention. So the way we've always done is going from program and whenever we do an initial program we do try to be as rigorous with an RCT as possible. In education they don't take 15 to 17 years luckily. It's normally more of a two to five year horizon. And only then do we move from program to policy and only after we see evidence at the policy level, by the way, often programs when they move to the policy level get diluted and whether it's because of uh, of, of lower uh, treatment fidelity because of the magnitude or bureaucracies, you need to know that this can actually work having the government being the, the, the implementer. 
And only then do we actually go to the last uh, part, which is going from policy to law. And that's, in our experience, the only way to ensure that whatever program that you um, translate into policy is not uh, at the volition of whomever is in power, and that it is somewhat impermeable to different uh, political and economic interests. So um, we've, uh, and, and including in, in Bhutan, been able to, in the world of education, seeing that well-being can be definable locally, can be measurable locally, can be buildable, especially in children and adolescents. And by the way, it really translates uh, pretty reliably to enhance academic performance, specifically on standardized exams, which is really the way we've been able to move the needle with a lot of policy people who care about standardized exams and only standardized exams, or re-election and standardized exams being a path for that. And uh, I'll close with, with saying, you know, with these multiple, whether happiness and well-being is intrinsically valuable for some people or instrumentally valuable in that it leads to beneficial life outcomes, we like to have the, all of the results because whether you're an enlightened minister of education who cares about the well-being of children and adolescents or a minister of education who cares about his or her political career and re-election, we can show that promoting well-being, at least in schools, is, 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 is a win-win. So um, that's how we've been able to translate science to policy and practice uh, in an efficacious and efficient manner. Thank you, Alejandro. I'll ask you one question, then we'll go to others, and then we'll bring everyone back. So um, you said something very interesting. So I don't know how many of you caught that, but I did. Um, uh, so you said uh, you want to promote happiness through education, right? Or introduce happiness as one of the variables in promoting education. At the same time, you said introducing those policies around happiness will improve academic achievement, especially around standardized tests. Now, so is education about standardized tests? What should an education that includes, incorporates well-being, happiness, should look like? So my, my uh, opinion is education should be about giving students the knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values to thrive across the lifespan. For me, that does boil down to giving educators and hence students the skills to flourish in life. So for happiness and well-being as the end result of education, together with traditional literacy, numeracy, science, is enough for me. But if a minister of education will do it only because it raises standardized exams, I don't care why he or she is doing it, as long as they're doing it. And that was a little bit of the debate we were having yesterday, which is just do it whether it's for political purposes, for standardized exams, for happiness, mm -hmm. um, as long as, but yes, what is the purpose of education? Preparing students and to thrive professionally and personally. And, and how do you know that what you're doing will lead to thriving? I mean, how do you make those decisions? You know, so. Oh, well, so. we, we so. measure it, uh, and we measure it in cohort studies. Across the lifespan? So. Well, we don't have enough uh, years, but yes, we've followed uh, adolescents into 
uh, early adulthood and, um, and into the 30s now, and we've seen increases in multidimensional well-being um, and lower um, uses of, of alcohol and substances, better marriages, um, and better performance eventually also in the workplace. So I'm not being mean to him, and I'm just saying the kind no, of no, dilemmas no. we go through as we decide these things, you know, these are the kind of real issues that people wrestle with. Uh, I'll come back to Alejandro, be mean to him later. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so let's go to Eric Coles. Eric is a, uh, as he described himself, is a recovering economist. Uh, um, uh, he was at the National Institutes of Health as a health economist, uh, and then decided uh, to um, change careers midway, uh, come to Harvard uh, Chan of School of Public Health, is in the Doctoral of Public Health Leadership Program. Uh, and uh, Eric is really thinking through, as some economists are thinking about these things, you know, going beyond GDP into other measures of welfare and well-being, and happiness is being one of them. So Eric is a co-conspirator on crime. Uh, we are working together on a number of issues, uh, including a white paper uh, he led uh, with me. So uh, Eric's going to talk about happiness without health, happiness with health, and I have a message from your mom. <laughs> Apparently, you were asked to come to Harvard so that you can completely reform the healthcare <laughs> system. So hopefully you'll do that. So. Yeah, it's a good start. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, first I just want to thank Kinga and all the organizers. Uh, this has been a, it's a true honor to be here in, in front of you today, and I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also think, um, before getting into kind of the translation about between health and happiness, I've been, I recognize through all the sessions today that health as a field, as a sector, has been kind of right below the surface. Um, even thinking back to the, to the very opening statement by Dean Hempton here, he used uh, Thomas Jefferson's fam famous quote from the Declaration of, in of Independence. Um, and the first right he says there is, is, is life. And I think that has, reflects a lot on the importance of the health sector and how important this health is in, in, in this field of ha happiness. We also saw it um, to the very first panel here, John Helwell's uh, The World Happiness Reports. They devoted the entire second chapter of the most recent book to using ha happiness as an in indicator for health. It's, it, they argue, I think, very con con convincingly that happiness or a well-being measure should, should be how we evaluate our health systems and how we allocate our resources. Um, to even the, the, the previous session before this, uh, Professor Gershfield mentioned, uh, you know, trying to build things to affect how, how we live, work, and play. Well, I, I'm, I'm a student of pub, public health, and how we define pu uh, public health is uh, affecting those, the, 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 the determinants within where we live, work, and play that affect our, our, our health. Our, that sort of idea we call them like the social determinants of, of health. That's really our bread and butter. So I think you know in all these in all of these sessions today that we've heard, hap health is right below the surface of hap happiness. I think it's it's right right there, and um, I have my, kind of my own opinions about where public health should should be in in promoting this. But um, before kind of getting into that and getting into uh, the questions of translation that Vish brought up, I'd like to also kind of take a step back and give more background about why health is important in this field of hap happiness. And I apologize, like I'm, I'm from the U.S., it's going to be a little bit U, U.S. focused. Um, but I think here, here in, in the U.S., which I assume a lot of people here are, are Americans, 
we're obviously going through a lot of problems right, right now, but one of the problems that we don't speak about a lot is that life expectancy has actually decreased in, in the U.S. over the last several, several years. It's actually the first time um, life expectancy has decreased since the AIDS ep epidemic. It's, it's un, un, unheard of. It goes against a lot of kind of theories of pu public health and about the progress we should be, be making. A lot of that decrease in life expectancy is because of what have, have been termed diseases of despair, basically alcoholism, suicide, addiction. Everyone, everyone's heard of the opioid ep epidemic, how that's ravaging a lot of communities in, in this country. And that's really driving a lot of the, the decreases in life expectancy as, as, as well as tons of other, of other problems. But I think that, that, that terminology is really interesting, diseases of, of despair. I think that's, that gets at some of this happiness stuff we, we've been talking about a lot to, to, today. And my opinion here is that uh, we, the, this country would benefit a lot from focusing more on ha happiness, uh, addressing these diseases of despair. We've also heard a few times about, you know, about social media and being, people being addicted to, your, to, to their cell phones. There's some kind of more recent research con con connecting use of social media to health outcomes, and that's also negative too. So you know, there's lots of reasons to get off, off your phone and off social media. So I, th I think there's a lot that can be connected between, between these fields of health and, hap and happiness. So um, getting to back to what Vish was saying about the translation of science into research, we've been kind of studying a lot about um, at, at the policy level, and I think we've, we've kind of identified two gaps that are kind of really hin hindering and uh, prohibiting science, medical research, from being um, translated in, into this hap happiness field. Um, so I'll kind of go through those two, two missing gaps, and then I'll, give, I'll close with my opinion, if there's enough time. Um, so I think the first question that is still unanswered um, is how health is included in these measurements of, 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 of health. As we heard this morning, uh, Dasher's shit team went through the domains of the GNH, gross, uh, gross, hap gross domestic happiness, and he mentioned health twice. I think it's really in interesting. There's an entire, an, an entire domain that's focused on health, which is like that's the physical health that most people kind of com commonly think of. But there's also one of the, the newer kind of innovative domains of psychological health. And whether we, you know, how, how we define it, I think that's really in interesting. Um, that, that, that's on there twice, that the word health is on there twice and has much different measures from how, how we're measuring it and how it's being in included. And then actually, almost unfortunately, we haven't spoken a lot about, there's a lot of other measures of, of health out, out there besides just Bhutan. The World Happiness Re Report that's been mentioned a few times uses a life satisfaction question um, that is very limited. It's a, it's a single question or two. Um, there's also, but there's also tons of other measures, like as was also mentioned, the conference we had yesterday, um, we, brought, we brought in some practitioners that, uh, that measuring health around the world and they've been including health in different guises. So um, like, just, just outside here, there's the city of Somerville, Massachusetts, I think borders Cambridge actually. They focus on, they have a, hap a happiness measure, um, and which is again kind of focused around this life satisfaction question, but they usually phrase it in terms of commuting, in terms of how long it takes people to commute to work. And that's obviously really important to those residents of Somerville, but it might not be important to residents of Bhutan. Um, there's also, you know, we, have, we had a practitioner yesterday from Santa Monica, California. They have their own measurement of health, a kind of uh, a quality of life in, indicator. And there's other domains of, that go into that that, that, that are not just um, as uh, Bhutan me me measured it. So 
What uh, Santa Monica, California has is they have a, a financial measure, again, a, a physical health measure, a measure of, of environment, and a measure of ed education as, as well. So, some, so they don't have psychological health. There's other places like the o OECD that focuses on, uh, on mental health. So how we include health in, in these measures of hap happiness varies tremendously, which is kind of, I feel personally, is unfortunate because in terms of the, the definitions, which, which kind of goes on the, 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 the current second gap in the literature, um, is the World Health or Organization is one of these really you know, broad UN um, or organizations that focuses on, on health. They have a definition of, of health, which is really seen as the, the seminal def definition within the field. And I have it written out here. So they, they define health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Which, that was written in 1946, which I think was tremendously precinct in, 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 in that. But again, like physical, mental, and social well-being. So they include a lot of these kind of terms that others use in other ways, and there's no consistency there. They also say, they also use the term well-being, which they've actually been attacked, um, not attacked, but you know, people have dis disagreed with this definition because of this use of well-being and how similar that is to hap happiness. And we had just heard how in a lot of academic literature, well-being and happiness are usually used synonymously um, and with well-being actually being preferred. So I think there's a lot of kind of that goes into that def definition. And if you look at a lot of these measures of, hap of happiness, whether it's Bhutan or whether it's um, the o OECD or more lo local measures, there's not a clear def definition. I have, like, I have examples written down in front of me, but the point is that there's, there, there's a lot of variety in exactly how they're, how they're being defined. And personally, I think a lot of that comes from um, how this field has developed has been mainly psychologists and economists. There haven't been a lot of health professionals, unfortunately, in, in this field. If you saw the first, uh, the first panel this morning, there was, there's no kind of M MDs, there's no public health people there, and I, I think that's really lacking in, in, in this field. So if I could just end briefly with, with my opinion about where I think happiness should be and the kind of who should be responsible for it, I, I think we need a much stronger health sector and a much stronger uh, influence of, of health. And I don't say that because I want to be like selfish and you know, have it all for, for the health, but I think there's a lot of resources that can be utilized if you focus this on the health problem. I just have like the data is globally, each year we spend about seven and a half trillion dollars on, on, on health. I think if you're able to mobilize a fraction of that to kind of this area of, hap of happiness, it would be tremendous. And it would be, you know, really be expanding this way beyond Bhutan and could be really, really exciting. And, and there's a lot of, obviously, like getting back to where I started with the, the disease of, of despair, there's a lot, of, a lot of need for it here in, in the US, but I think it could be much more globally ap applicable if, if we make this more of a, a health issue. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Eric. Uh, that was very nicely done. So let me ask you um, a very unfair question. <laughs> Uh, I'm his advisor, I can do that, <laughs> uh, poor guy, you know, so, uh, so if you, you, you really ended it very nicely by saying that we focus too much on disease of despair, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, we are talking about happiness, this entire conference is about happiness, which is so far from despair, maybe it's an <coughs> antonym in some ways. If you look at our medical system, it's all organized around body parts and their problems. 
right? All the specialization, everything. Uh, there is no doctor for happiness. There is no fellowship for happiness. <laughs> so what do you think? How do you get from here to there? <clears throat> Great question. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot behind that. So first, like, I'm not a clinician, so I'm not an MD, so I don't know. That's where you can go ahead exactly. and say whatever so you I want to say. say right? So I can kind of disparage them a little bit. But, but just saying, I, so there's been a lot of work that, like, these social determinants of, of, of health actually are more important to your health status than the clinical care you receive. Mm -hmm. Kind of where, where you live, work, work, work and play, research says, has, like, about 60% um, uh, is, is responsible for your, about 60% of your health status, while the care you receive is only responsible for about 20%. I think there's a growing recognition of that within within the U.S. and also glo globally. I know um, state Medicaid programs across the country are now focusing more on social determinants of 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 of, of health. We're spending so much on healthcare that all of this effort to decrease decrease costs. I think of, uh, an unexplored and un untapped way to to, to, so to to decrease costs is by focusing on these social determinants of 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 health. So kind of getting to what Alejandro was saying about you know, I, I personally, I, I would feel that happiness, well-being should be, you know, is, is the intrinsic goal in itself. While where we are right now, I think sometimes it needs to be used as an instrumental goal. And it, it's, it's uh, and, and using that as an instrumental goal to the intrinsic goal of decreasing costs or improving health, you know, you know more traditional health outcomes. Um, I, I, I think there's lots of arguments that can be made for why we, why the health system should focus on on health that are still in the health field mm -hmm. and and um, should be utilized much more often. Great, thank you, uh, Mr. Kaka. So um, Mr. Kaka is um, from Bhutan, but now in uh, England, Australia. right? Australia uh, involved uh, in education uh, for a long time uh, before it decided. Uh, um, you know, to go back uh, to graduate school and uh, do his doctorate. So he will speak about his role. Uh, before I begin, uh, I would like to thank uh, the organizer uh, for uh, making this conference happen and, uh, of course, accepting me to be the part of this conference. Uh, this is really a, an honor and privilege for me to be here, especially in Harvard, because as a child myself, I've heard Harvard as something really divine kind of school. And today I'm here uh, uh, really being a part of Harvard. So that makes me really happy. And the moment uh, I shared my you know, news with my colleagues that I'm going to Harvard, they seem to be more excited than me. Oh, you're going to Harvard? <laughs> How did you manage that? You know, these are the questions that people ask. So today I'm here. I'm very privileged to be with all these experts. Uh, I don't know whether I would be able to give any insights on gross national happiness, but I can definitely share the Bhutan's experience on infusing cross-national happiness into the school system. This started sometimes in 2009 and 10 with the first democratically elected government. Uh, the first government was really very interested in infusing, integrating and promoting cross-national happiness values and philosoph philosophies into the school system because they really believed. And His Majesty even believed that the future of the nation are it with the youth in the, in the schools. So the government believed that if you actually do not infuse the values, integrate the values of gross national happiness in the school system, I don't think, I think uh, no government will be able to actually achieve the holistic, the, you know, the aspiration of gross national happiness. 
So with that background in, you know, in mind, educating gross, for gross national happiness was established. And I'm sure you are part of that then. Um, it was uh, done with the purpose uh, to, to, to make uh, and enrich learning in the schools, um, uh, to give a genuine and heartfelt you know, purpose and context in education, and to make learning and curriculum more meaningful and more uh, you know, pleasurable. So that was the actual essence behind uh, uh, instituting educating for gross national happiness in Bhutan. Um, the ultimate aim uh, through, the, through the project uh, educating for gross national happiness was to produce school graduates as a genuine human being who would be, who, you know, through this system would be able to realize the full potential as a human being, who are caring for others, who are ecologically literate, who are free of greed, and who would be able to live in harmony with nature and others. So that was the actual ultimate aim. Um, to be able to do that, when this project was established, uh, you know, instituted and you know, started in, in 2009 and um, for the first time in the history of Bhutan, all education practitioners, the school principals, and the district education officers were trained how they should infuse, integrate, and promote gross national happiness concepts, values, and philosophies into the school system. And, uh, and later, in the course of following years, almost 80 to 90% of the teachers were also trained to be able to infuse and integrate gross national happiness. Um, and the educationalists, with, with, the, with the support of the international experts on health, and, I mean, gross national happiness, they kind of you know, came up with uh, what they called, what we called uh, the five pathways to be able to integrate, infuse, and promote gross national happiness in the school system. And that was number one, meditation and mind training. You know, to be able to enhance and improve the psychological well-being of the children, this has to be an integral part of the school system. So it was almost a mandatory that schools had you know, started meditation and mind training, starting from the you know, kindergarten teacher schools till, till year 12 and even to the, to the tertiary institutions. The second was, was you know, to be able to, our teachers were encouraged to infuse uh, the values of GNH in the curriculum. You know, GNH is not to be taught as a separate subject, but to be infused in all the subjects wherever relevant be it you know, the language, the science, mathematics, happiness, the concept of happiness, the value of happiness to be infused in the curriculum. Then in the school system, it's not just the classroom education that happens, but there are a lot of other programs happening, like sports, the music, the clubs, the other programs. So happiness to be consciously also to be infused in other you know, uh, programs as well, which, which was defined something called the broader learning domain in the school system. And it was realized that in Bhutan, uh, our teachers tend to be serious with anything that is actually assessed or tested. So, so it was also thought that if GNH-infused education has to be successful, it has to be holistically assessed because you know, assessment which is done more through examination 
or submissive kind of assessment did not really promote happiness, and there are also, you know, a lot of ideas being generated as how to how to infuse uh, you know, uh, the philosophies and the values of gross national happiness if we actually, you know, make a revolution in terms of how students are assessed. And uh, the final one was all the teachers also actually tried to, uh, you know, uh, 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 they were made to to make our, our students um, uh, media literate. Uh, media literacy was given a lot of focus to be able to promote uh, GNH because uh, uh, Bhutan then was uh, actually getting exposed to a lot of media. Uh, <coughs> children were very excited with a lot of you know, media coming in, the television coming in, the Facebook, you know, internet. So a lot of you know, information coming in. Then children started believing in whatever they actually get it through the media. So media literacy was one of the uh, you know, pathways that was initiated to be able to promote uh, GNH in the school system. And uh, with this uh, system, uh, the Ministry of Education, uh, with, the, with, with the profound idea of our first democratically elected uh, uh, minister, uh, Lembo Thakur Singh, uh, he came up with a profound idea called eight greeneries to be you know, uh, promoted in the schools, which, we, which he called as you know, natural greenery, social greenery, cultural greenery, intellectual greenery, academic greenery, aesthetic greenery, spiritual greenery, and moral greenery. He you know, defined greenery not just in terms of color. This was a metaphor that he has used as some kind of you know, the sustainable kind of uh, education where the moment a child or Danger enters a school, he can find the school as something welcoming. You know, everything is neat, spick and span, clean, green. You know. And then the moment somebody enters the school and interacts with the children and the teachers, they find it really the GN is being infused there. People are so polite, so courteous. You know. And then as they interact, you could see the culture within the, you know, the society inside the school. And the programs, you know, the minds of the children are really intellectual. Academic pro programs are really, you know, GNH infused, and through that, people are able to actually identify what is really beautiful, what is good, or what is bad. You know, the, the spiritual aspects of the children are really enhanced, and finally, you know, children are really morally enhanced. They know what is good and bad, what is better and the best, what is good and more good. You know, all this. So these eight greeneries were some of the, you know, initiatives that. Uh, uh, has been, you know, uh, that had been uh, instituted in the school system. And of late, I have uh, learned that more than Bhutan, in fact, uh, uh, Japan has, in fact, <coughs> translated this uh, eight green area book, a guideline actually written by uh, the, the Minister Takurishin Baudel into Japan, and this taught in Japan. Um, probably, I would be very interested to actually be able to find out how Japanese are doing uh, these greeneries uh, back in their country. Uh, I was also told that these um, you know, greeneries are in fact translated into Spanish, uh, Vietnamese, and German. Um, uh, uh, this is very, really going to be you know, interesting to see how, how Bhutanese version of these eight greeneries are actually translated into these languages uh, and, and you know, taken very seriously into the school system. Uh, this was uh, the latest news that I have. Okay. Um, Having said this, uh, uh, it doesn't mean that 
everything in Bhutan, the school systems, the GNH is really increased so well. There are a lot of challenges, you know. Our teachers are doing well. Now, to be able to do this, our teachers should be GNH literate teachers. Our principals and school leaders should be GNH literate leaders. Are they really GNH literate leaders? Are they really GNH literate teachers? Do they, do they know what GNH is? Do they believe in GNH? Are they able to practice GNH so that they uh, not just preach, but able to, they are also able to demonstrate what GNH is? And students are able to see them as a model where they can actually you know, take in GNH from their teachers directly, not just through what they teach in the classroom, but through the practices that they see in their teachers. So uh, if this is not there, probably um, to be able to realize the vision that is set and the policies that is set is going to be very difficult. So, because I have worked myself as the district education officer some five years ago, I've also worked as a principal and a teacher. I've later worked even in the ministry as an education monitoring officer. I have seen through this process and I know there are a lot of difficulties. Our teachers are not able to do that while that, that's the vision that is set, while that is the policy statement that has been made. But to be able to put that into practice is really difficult. So, knowing this, I am now in Australia, <laughs> resigned from service, and I'm actually pursuing my PhD degree, and the topic is cross-national happiness literacy. Um, and uh, this is my dream. I want to be able to, you know, frame and come up with GNH literacy and leadership framework. Very recently, before I came here, I had made a presentation of my confirmation of candidature. And uh, of course, they passed my candidature, confirmed my candidature, but uh, it came up with a big condition, the condition that, that your PhD topic is really very ambitious, and you need to really seriously look into and come back to us within the one month trying to you know, uh, convince us whether that is really achievable and doable within the period of your studies. Uh, I would like to share that with you uh, just for, for, the, uh, for the, as an information. Um, so my proposed, research, oh, I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I stop here. Right. I finished my first part. Maybe, maybe I can leave it. Uh, for the question, yeah. I'm, more, more than the presentation, I'm scared of Dr. Vish asking yeah. a very difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I do look like a very mean and nasty guy. So, uh, uh, it's not the first time, it's not the last time. Um, uh, let me ask uh, you one question. Uh, I think we'll bring him back, Kinga, for his dis thesis presentation once he <laughs> yeah, finishes his dissertation. That would be, you know, we can do that. Uh, but. So here is the challenge I raised earlier, right? So you identified very nicely, I thought it's a wonderful summary. You have a very rich experience, both in terms of practice, now you're going in, you're in Australia, yeah. reflecting on what you have done in, with, from that yeah. rich background. And you identified um, sort of five pathways um, Not that me. to yes. the system yes. as identified. Yes. So meditation, infusing, in the curriculum as well as uh, GNH in the curriculum yeah. as well as extramural activities uh, and, and a whole group of things. And then he also added media literacy. Media literacy yes. So here is my question. This is the dilemma, right? We know from the literature, media literacy is actually doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I'm a communication scientist, so I can say that with some confidence. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so, 
So how do we make sure that what we are adopting and scaling across entire system? Meditation, of course, we have very good evidence now. Evidence has been building up. So how do we ensure that before we do these things and, and, and infuse them entire system, that the things we are trying to do to promote something, you know, is evidence-based? I think I have no answer to your question, but what I know one thing is, when this idea was actually instituted in the education system in Bhutan, uh, policymakers realized that if our children, the school children, are not media literate, mm -hmm. they can really be bombarded with a lot of advertisements, the news, that may not necessarily be very helpful to them. The basic idea of media literacy, I do not know, I'm not a media literate person too. What I know of for sure is, you know, if there is a basic media literacy to make our students critical in consuming the media that comes to them, to be able to at least question to themselves, okay, this is what I have in front of me, okay, this is an inform a piece of information. Where does this information come from? Is it reliable? Do I believe this in this information or not? Okay, who do I ask to really ensure that this in piece of information is really good to me or not? Mm -hmm. There's the product big advertisement saying that if you do this, you don't have to go to the doctor, you would be able to be slim in 20 days. Do I believe in this? So basically the media literacy in our context was actually trying to mm -hmm. give our children Mm -hmm. a kind of critical thinking skills to be able to mm -hmm. put themselves a question and be able to make a judgment to them, mm -hmm. okay, this is really uh, information that's going to be useful to me, that's not going to be useful to me, so I don't believe in this, mm -hmm. I believe in this. Mm -hmm. So that was the basic idea mm -hmm. of media literacy. Sure. I do not know mm -hmm. what media literacy that you are actually mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. you know, ask me on. Mm -hmm. uh, please yeah. do not ask me further questions, <laughs> I will not have any answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that ought to shut me up. <laughs> uh, uh, except that's exactly what we mean by media literacy yeah, okay. and measure. So, uh, and, and I wanted to illustrate the point that what we think intuitively nobody can argue with Mr. Kakar. Right? That's exactly what we want our kids to know. Uh, you know, how do you become a critical consumer of media? Uh, but the fact of the matter is uh, a number of curricula uh, and uh, even exp field experiments and RCTs run show very mixed evidence on the effects mm -hmm. of media literacy, right? I mean, uh, so, so this, is, this is a continuous challenge. How do we do, and we scale them up, you know, adopt, one good example, uh, you know, adopt something that is evidence-based. One good, one, one in interesting thing I want to end here is social media is being trashed, or social media are being trashed. I don't know whether it's a plural or a singular. <laughs> I, English is not my native language, uh, but, uh, the interesting thing is the evidence is again, you know, a little iffy. We are going to publish a paper pretty soon here which shows that social media can actually be beneficial for positive mental health under certain conditions, mm -hmm. under certain conditions, right? Uh, and so this is the kind of a thing, so when we uh, challenge we face, right, when we scale things up, you know, what kind of evidence base do we have to scale it up? before we make decisions, legal or otherwise, number one. The second question we always struggle with, how much evidence is enough before you can act? 
Right, this is again a big challenge. So, um, Kinga, how are we doing? I know it's four o'clock. I don't think we, yeah, I have been given a signal. So sorry, we are out of time. I apologize, but you can find them here. I'll give them, uh, I will give you their home addresses <laughs> and everything <laughs> if you want. So let's thank the panel. They were wonderful. Thank you.